the inerrancy of Scripture, the great watershed. Now, you know what a watershed is. I don't know how many people here might have hiked the Drakensberg. I've hiked in Drakensberg. Anyone else? Drakensberg Mountain. You know what Drakensberg means? They're the Dragon Mountains. Now, the Drakensberg is the great watershed of South Africa. Now, if you climb right to the top, to the summit, there is what they call the watershed. And the watershed is, it divides where the waters go. So the rains fall, and if it falls just a few inches to the west of this watershed, it will inevitably flow all the way down into the Orange River and end up in the Atlantic Sea. But if it falls just a few inches to the right of that watershed, to the east, we should say, it will flow inevitably out into the Tugela River. And so here's the Orange River flowing out uh, through the Northern Cape, ending up in the Atlantic Ocean, and then you've got the Tugela River ending into the Indian Ocean. Now, you may say, what difference does it make at the beginning whether the Rain falls, uh, you know, just a few inches that side, a few inches that side of this Drakensberg Mountain. Well, it doesn't seem to matter initially. But the further that water goes after that watershed, it'll make miles and then hundreds and then thousands of kilometers difference, and it'll end up in different oceans. And so it is when it comes to the matter of Scripture. And so one of the most important issues at any Reformation 500 conference is to consider the issue of the authority of Scripture. Now, we were planning to be in Brooms, as we were in Wittenberg in 2017, uh, to mark that 500th anniversary of nailing 95 Thieves. Now, the nailing of 95 Thieves was important, but that was the first challenge. But Worms is where Martin Luther made his bold stand on the word of God alone, and popes and councils have often heard and contradict themselves, and that was, in many ways, a far more important anniversary. Worms, magnificent castle gate uh, at the bridge. And this is the church where it is marked that Martin Luther made his stand here. This is the historic Worms. And by God's grace, we were hoping to be there. And this is the Reformation Monument in Worms, Germany. Martin Luther making a stand on the word of God, surrounded by the pre-reformers Wycliffe and Huss and Savonarola and Peter Wilder. The inerrancy of Scripture is the great watershed when it comes to the church, when it comes to worldview, when it comes to laws, and every issue that you can imagine. Authority. That's the issue. Authority. The church father, Oregon, who lived in the 2nd and 3rd century, constantly referred to the Scripture as the final authority in his controversy with Celsus over the deity of Christ. The church father, St. Augustine, declared, for I confess to your charity that I've learned to defer this respecting honor to those scripture books only, which are now called canonical, that I believe most firmly that no one of these authors has erred in any respect in writing. So infallibility and inerrancy was accepted by the early church fathers, and it was most seriously expounded by the reformers. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther declared, the scriptures have never erred. It is impossible that scripture should contradict itself. It only so appears to the senseless and obstinate hypocrites. We've got to put down any apparent inconsistency in scripture to our lack of knowledge and 
the further we study, the more we find, oh, these contradictions actually uh, sort themselves out. I didn't know enough. And yet I mustn't jump to the assumption that I know more than the author of the scriptures. The scriptures, the scepter by which Christ rules his church. John Calvin referred to the scriptures as the sure and infallible record and the unerring standard. It's a gold standard. He also called scripture the scepter by which Christ rules his church. And I've been to some reformed churches where they've got a lovely tradition where at the beginning of the service, everyone stands as an elder carries an open Bible and lays it on the table in front. And that's, that's quite a nice idea. I've also come across churches, especially in Eastern Europe and in Mozambique, even in Sudan, where whenever you read the scripture, the people would stand for the reading of the scripture. And I remember seeing this quite to my amusement when uh, my sermons are saturated with scripture. I saw the congregation bouncing up and down every time I was <laughs> reading from the scripture. So uh, I realized, uh, interesting, uh, maybe their pastors didn't read from it quite as often. I've also seen some Anglican churches that have the Old Testament reading, have the New Testament reading, but when it came to the gospel reading, they asked the congregation to stand. This is just reminding us in a physical way the reality that the scripture is the scepter by which Christ rules his church. All the reformers taught this. This is a monument to William Farrell, the great debater, the great evangelist of Switzerland, the man who won Neuchâtel and Geneva to Christ. The man who's, uh, if you go to the monument in Geneva, he's the only one holding the scriptures in his left hand, everyone else holding it in their right hand, and his, his right hand's in a fist because he is the brawler, he is the fighter, he is the debater. And uh, he would go into any town like Geneva or Neuchâtel, preach the gospel, the bishop's soldiers would come and try and shut him down, and then he'd challenge the bishop to a debate, which he'd always win. And when the bishop ran out of words, he'd start to assault uh, uh, William Perel. William Perel actually was getting drowned in the fountain in Neuchâtel by the bishop when he wound round with a haymaker and took the bishop's lights out. And with bleeding knuckles, he went into the pulpit and preached the gospel to the people from the bishop's own pulpit, while his friends, Pierre, Verette, and Vermont, held the door shut against the soldiers. And then he called the people to, the, to vote, do you want to stay with papal superstition, or will you embrace the doctrines of the Reformation? The whole town would vote for the Reformation. This is how Neuchâtel and Geneva were won to Christ. And it's Farrell who recruited Calvin into uh, the work of the gospel in Geneva. Now here he is holding the scripture in both hands up aloft, and this monument is just simply called Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. It stands forever. Think of John Knox holding the scripture here outside St. Giles Kirk in Edinburgh. He prayed Give me Scotland or I die. And this is the man whose prayers were so dangerous that Mary, Queen of Scots, said she's more afraid of the prayers of John Knox than of an army of 10,000. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. God's word is everlasting. Our Lord Jesus Christ declared, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, one tittle will by no means pass in law till all is fulfilled. Now, Matthew 5, 18 is referring to the smallest little dot and, and apostrophe on top of the letters. So it's not just 
the words, it's not just the letters, it's even the, the, the commas and the apostrophes of the God's word. They will not pass away. They're more settled than heaven and earth. Heaven and earth will pass away before one of God's words pass away, our Lord Jesus Christ taught. God's word is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Matthew 24, 35. God's word endures forever. 1 Peter 1, verse 25. But the word of the Lord endures forever. The Bible is the anvil on which many hammers have been shattered. We went just a week ago over at the Reformation Society over how many dictators have tried to destroy the Bible and they have just destroyed themselves, attempting to destroy the Bible. The Bible has been the anvil that has shattered many a hammer. The Word of God is inspired by God, by His Holy Spirit. All Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. And it is useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is key. It is God-breathed. 2 Peter 1, verse 21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It is Holy Spirit-inspired. Some people say, oh, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but what they mean is, well, in the sense that, like, Shakespeare's writings are inspired. Yeah. We use the word inspired in, in a lower sense for human writings. You can say that was an inspired message or an inspired... But when we talk about the Scripture being inspired, we're not talking about that way. We're meaning it is literally God-breathed. It is the faithful word. Let us remember William Tyndale gave his life that we could have the Bible in English burned at the stake for the crime of translating the Bible into English. The first 6,000 New Testaments in English, the first printed New Testaments, printed in Germany, smuggled from the Netherlands into England, almost all intercepted and burned by order of the Bishop of London. Only two copies still survive of the first New Testaments printed. And if you want a copy, you're going to need a lot of money because one copy of a Tyndale New Testament was sold recently for 5.4 million pounds. Not Rand, not Zimbabwe dollars, not American dollars, pounds. 5.4 million pounds. I'd like to see them selling a copy of Harry Potter or uh, the Spice Girls album or something for that. Uh, the fact is the Bible's the most precious book, the most valuable book in history. What other book in the world would people die for? Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. So, Titus 1 verse 9 says, An elder, a deacon, a pastor, a teacher must always be equipped by the word of God. He's got to know how to hold fast to the faithful word and to be able, by sound doctrine, to correct, to encourage, to exhort, to instruct, and to convict or contradict those who oppose. It is the discerning word. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharp than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How many times have you heard the word of God read, or you've read it, and it's convicting. It makes you squirm, and it's uncomfortable. You think, how, how did this writer, I mean, there's King David 3,000 years ago, 
And he's describing exactly what we see, what we experience, what we witness, what we uh, fear today even. I mean, it's all there. It's all there in the scriptures because God breathed. The cleansing word. How can a young man cleanse his way? The psalmist asked, by taking heed according to your word. Psalm 119, verse 9. You would remember Psalm 119 is the longest book, longest chapter in the Bible. And it was Psalm 119 that David Livingston had to memorize at age nine in order to earn his first copy of the New Testament. It is the word of truth. I've seen the original of this painting in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Our Lord Jesus Christ declared this high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So you cannot say that you follow the Lord Jesus or believe in the Lord Jesus if you don't accept his word as truth. Jesus chose 12 men. He trained them. He discipled them. He breathed on them. He guided them. He imbued them with the Holy Spirit. He commissioned them. He gave them the command to teach and to preach. And they produced the books, the epistles, the gospels that form our New Testament. Our Lord quoted from all of the Old Testament books as authoritatively the word of God. And he commissioned the people who wrote the New Testament. You cannot accept Jesus as Lord without accepting the Bible that he taught as authoritative and the New Testament which he commissioned his followers to produce. It's a matter of the nature of God. We believe God's word to be infallible because God himself is infallible. God is truth and therefore his words are truth. The scriptures of God breathed. God is fully able to preserve the record of his revelation. And he has. By what other standard can we live? There are those who say that their authority is Christ, not the Bible. I've, I've met people like the theological students, theological professors. When they look at our frontline declaration, it starts off with um, our belief in the Bible. Well, I would start off with my belief in God, they say. But how do you know God unless you take from the Bible as source? By what standard are you measuring? What do you mean by God? Father Christmas, magic genie, someone who gives you what you want. You know, many people have some strange ideas. The amount of times you hear people saying, my God would never condemn anyone to hell. My Jesus would never condemn homosexuals. Tutu said, if, if God doesn't accept homosexuals into heaven, then I don't want to go there either. Well, I don't think he needs to worry. But when people come up with, well, my God would never condemn anyone to hell, agree with them. That's true. Your God couldn't because your God doesn't exist. It's just a figment of your imagination. There's only one God that exists, and that's the creator who has spoken in and through the prophets and revealed himself in and through Jesus Christ. That is the only God, the God of the Bible. Every other God, you know, when you come up with, well, my God, well, my Jesus, well, I think that's not God. That's just a delusion. There are people who hold to a weakened view of infallibility that claim the Bible is only infallible in matters of faith and practice. But in terms of science and history, it could contain errors. These are the ones who, like Schofield Bible, they're the ones who uh, have to write in the idea of the Big Bang and uh, allow for millions and billions of years between day one and uh, between the first verse and the second verse of Genesis and things like that. But uh, 
They don't hold to infallibility or inerrancy as we do. By this apparent super pious statement, you know, well, my authority is Jesus, not the Bible. We've got a question for how can Christ have any authority if the witness to him, his gospels, are not infallible? If the word of God is not preserved, if the Bible is fallible, by what standard then are we to know him or how are we to know his will? Well, I feel, well, I think, that's not good enough. You need something objective. And the Bible is deceptive by which Christ rules his church. God's word is above all things. There's no other way of knowing about Christ and his great commission except through the Bible. What people are doing when they try to sideline the Bible and say that their authority is God without being tied to the Bible as the word of God is to place their feelings, emotions, or reason on the throne, which should be reserved for God and for God's word alone. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found to be a liar. Proverbs 35 to 6. God's word shall never pass away. Our Lord Jesus Christ declared in Matthew 5, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen shall pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God cannot pass away. And those people who have tried to destroy the Bible have been super frustrated because they failed. The scripture cannot be broken. In John 10, verse 33 to 36, our Lord told the Jewish religious leaders that the scripture cannot be broken. In Matthew 22, 32, our Lord based his argument against the Sadducees on the present tense of the verb to be, or in Greek, imi. As God identified himself to Moses saying, I am, or ego imi, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it proves that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. If the resurrection of the body is not a fact, then God would have said, I was the God of Abraham. Yet hundreds of years after their death, God could state that he still is the God. I am the God of Abraham. This, our Lord Jesus taught, proved that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they had experienced physical death, were still very much alive. Now, you can explain it this way. We could illustrate the point that Christ is making this way. If you asked a married couple who had been blessed with four children, how many children do you have? They might say, we had four, but only three are living. But they may also say, we have four children, three on earth and one in heaven. For example, if you speak to Paul and Vicky Young, they will speak about uh, their family, they num number the family, and they mention Cherish, who's in heaven now. So they're counting their family, including the child that they lost. Now, there you can see they plainly believe in the resurrection. And so from the second answer, it's clear that parents who believe in the truth of the resurrection speak about their children who have died as that we still their parents are still our children because they're still alive. We had past tense, we have present tense. And so Jesus argued on the basis of the tense of the verse in the Old Testament to prove that God is the God of the living and therefore the resurrection of the body is a reality. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. Our Lord bases his argument defending the truth of the resurrection against Sadducees who've denied this by pointing to the present tense of God's revelation of himself as I am the God of Abraham, not I was. So even the tense is significant. Every word of God is sure. In Matthew 22, 43 to 45, our Lord Jesus Christ takes a single word from Psalm 110 verse 1 to prove that the son of David is also the Lord of David. The Messiah was born a descendant of King David, yet he is his divine Lord. 
So the tense of every word is trustworthy. In the same way, the Apostle Paul argues in Galatians 3.16 that the promise is to Abraham and to his seed, not to seeds as of many, but as of one, as to your seed, which is Christ. And so in Galatians 3.16, the very tense of the word is sufficient for him to argue that this is a messianic prophecy. This is not to the whole nation. This is fulfilled in Christ. God's word is truth. All of this proves that the plenary verbal inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture as contained in the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. This means that every word of God of Scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit and bear the authority of God. All of His words are true. Jesus treated the Old Testament as the words of God. And He commissioned His followers to produce the New Testament Gospels. All of His words are true. God is almighty and all of His words come with the full weight of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God is truth. It's definite. A.A. Hodges in Outlines in Theology writes, Men think in words, and the more definitely they think, the more are their thoughts immediately associated with the exactly appropriate verbal expression. Infallibility of thought cannot be secured or preserved independently of an infallible verbal rendering. And so you'll have arguments in court and you can imagine in many situations it's the words used that makes all the difference. And they'll argue sometimes over a tense and past and present tense and all the rest, singular or plural. It is the infallible standard. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. I'd rather be hated for speaking the truth than hailed for trying to redefine the truth. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said and will he not do, or has he not spoken, will he not make it good? Numbers 23, 19. God's word gives life. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. God's word is awesome. My heart stands in awe of your word. Psalm 119 often terrifies people because it's so long, but I advise you to read it all, even if it takes you a while but it's well worth it because all celebrating the word of God. And it was an awesome experience to go through every book of the Bible and seek to summarize it in sermon and in book chapter form for our Old Testament and New Testament survey, which was a six-year project. And uh, that Old and New Testament survey was inspired by Ulrich Zwingli's preaching through every verse of the Bible, starting with Matthew 1, verse 1, and he birthed expository preaching, 1st of January, 1519, and we, that was another Reformation 500. Isaiah 55 verse 11, we quote often at Literature for Africa. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is always fruitful. The greatest missionary is the Bible in the mother tongue. It needs no furlough and it's never considered a foreigner. That is the word's of William Cameron Townsend, who is the pioneer who founded Wycliffe Bible Translators. And so in our mission, our highest priority from the earliest days has been to deliver Bibles in the language of the people, Mozambique, Angola, Sudan, getting Bibles to the people who need them most, as far north as Egypt, as far over as Nigeria, and special study Bibles like the Reformation Study Bible, 
Back in 2005, I made a five-week 11-nation mission to Europe and preached everywhere from Ireland through to uh, Romania and up to Poland and so on. But the highlight for me was being able to get to Wittenberg, Germany, to get to Geneva, Zurich, and to, uh, to Geneva and Zurich in Switzerland. And as I stood there, I thought, 1517. 2017's coming up in 12 years' time. We need to start making preparation for Reformation 500. And then when I got down to Geneva, and I saw the birth date of John Calvin, 1509, I thought, 2009's coming up even sooner. Four years. And so the idea of launching the Calvin 500 and the Reformation 500 came to me. And shortly after that, I was in St. Andrew's uh, Chapel, R.C. Sproul's church, and I put to him, I said, R.C., we need to get a Reformation Bible going, and I don't know anyone who'd be better suited, equipped to be able to do that. And, and R.C. Sproul took up the challenge. He produced the Reformation Study Bible with, and this is major definitive, and he's produced New King James and ESV, and he's given us over 2,000 copies over the years free for us to distribute to pastors all over Africa. And here's a very happy pastor in Sinan getting, I mean, this is gold when it comes to um, academic theological studies. And so we praise God for someone like R.C. Sproul who took that challenge up. Well, we managed to mobilize people from as far afield as Canada and South Korea to uh, Geneva for the Calvin 500 in 2009 and uh, Wittenberg in 2017. The five solas are the gold standard that should guide all Christian rules today. Salvation is by the grace of God alone, received by faith alone, on the basis of Christ, atoned on the cross of Calvary alone, Christ alone is the head of the church, Scripture alone is our authority, and everything should be done to the glory of God alone. And solidio glory is actually written on our one rand coins to this day. This is where we stand. There are some great reformed confessions that have been produced over the years. And at this conference, we are wanting to also endorse many of these principles. Now, you will see we've got at the back a whole lot of great resources for people. Um, this is free for everyone. Please help yourself on the book table. It's uh, gifts from us, a mighty fortress, two discs, a lot of hymns, and a lot of great reformation hymns. Most people don't even know many of these great hymns. We try and sing these historic hymns because they're treasury of the, state, of the church. So that will help people to know how to sing them, uh, a cappella at least. And then we've put together a whole lot of coalition revival documents, some of which we are going to be seeking to endorse as a conference and online as well. Now, some of it includes, we produced, and this is part of the coalition revival documents, is the 95 Theses for Reformation Today. Now, the original 95 Theses we've got on our website, you can read them all, but they were overwhelmingly about indulgences. And so in the Reformation, uh, the 95 Theses for Reformation today, we put together 95 different quotes from great reformers, issues and scriptures that they quoted, from Zwingli, Calvin, Luther, Beza, Knox, uh, Tyndale, and uh, put a whole lot on a whole range of issues so that this is 95 Theses for Reformation today. Because... In the original 95 Thesis, Martin Luther just got started. <laughs> and so there's so much more that he brought out later. And that we've got also available 
and table back there in Afrikaans, in German as well, in the stand in front here. We've got it in French, if anyone wants it in French, and Flemish, too. So uh, we have got the first of the documents in the booklet, and this booklet, again, is free to everyone. Please help yourself to one of these before we go today. We want everyone to have this. But the first big section is on the authority of Scripture. And so we sent this around. We've got it on the Reform 500 website, and it includes the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which was endorsed by people like James Kennedy, R.C. Sproul. A lot of top uh, theologians worked on this for years. And you can't improve on perfection. So we've sent that around. And I've gotten this clipboard I'll have on the table here. Anyone wants to sign on behalf of yourself as an individual or as church, congregation, denomination that's there. Uh, we've got other declarations, Cape Town declarations on, which we circulated to speakers. It's on the website and it's linked on the event page on Reform SA website. So tonight, for those who want to and are available, we'll be screening the Martin Luther classic film at 7 o'clock. Are there any questions at all? Questions, comments on the inerrancy of Scripture? This is the watershed. Questions, comments, complaints, criticisms? Yes, Sean. Yes, that is correct. Uh, if you pick up a contemporary English version, um, so I'm a little allergic to it, uh, the, the translators to the contemporary English version, for example, say that they've taken out all difficult words like justification, sanctification, propitiation, repentance, repent, grace. Literally, repentance and grace they've taken out. So there are some bad translations. And so we don't want to suggest that there's ever a perfect translation. And so there could be a mistake because of lack of knowledge in some translations. So that's why in theology cultures they teach you Greek and Hebrew too. And that's why those of us who are not as proficient in it uh, can go to Vines, New Testament words, uh, and go and look at what the Greek says and all the shades of meaning of the Greek. And, and so uh, it's, it's good in new translations like the New King James Version or the English Standard Version where they will put there where there's any possible variant reading. You know, some manuscripts say this, and uh, this word is not so clear, and it doesn't affect much. It affects, what, a couple of pages of the total Bible, if you put it all together. But out of integrity, one has to say that with the limits of knowledge and the dangers of translation, that you could just misunderstand a word. Words' meanings could change over the years. You just take in the King James, for example, it speaks about conversation. And you think you know what conversation means. But conversation then meant your way of life. It didn't mean the way you spoke. And prevent. Prevent me in the King James actually means go ahead to make the way and enable me to do it. So prevent used to mean uh, to make it possible, whereas today prevent means not to. Presently used to mean immediately. <laughs> now presently means by and by. So in South Africa we've got this nice term uh, now now. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it now now. And I'm going to do it just now. And, and what does that actually mean? It doesn't actually mean now. It doesn't even mean now now. And now now doesn't even mean, and just now, it doesn't mean now. Um, so, so, you, so in translation, sometimes the translator doesn't understand the full meaning of the original script. And that's why there's room for, for um, 
humility and scholarship and comparison. And a, a good translation is key. So we don't want to suggest that all Bible translations are equal. Hardly. Some translations are based on some bad choice of manuscripts. And so we prefer the Textus Receptus. In our mission, you'll notice King James and New King James is our standard. Although I believe that the English Standard Version is also highly respected. Uh, but uh, And R.C. Sproul was on the uh, board uh, that did the translation. So I'm sure that would have been very strict. Uh, but a lot of the modern translations, they might be more dynamic equivalent for devotional, but not as useful for serious study. And so the more literal translation is the safest. So yes, that, that is an important point. Can you give that word again? Perspicuity. So how does the clarity of scripture affect Well, scripture is clear and scripture should be understood in the most natural sense, generally speaking. Of course, you've got to also understand it in, in its context. Is it poetry? Is it apocalyptic language? Is it straight history? And so on. So just as if you said, I was flying down the road just now, you understand that I didn't have a flying car. I was actually on the road. I didn't actually fly. it. It's a form of speech. So flying down the road, you'd understand, is um, it's not even hyperbole. It's just a term that you're driving fast. So you've got to understand in the context of what something is said. You know, when you speak about the four corners of the world, in fact, people often speak about taking uh, the gospel to four corners well, you think of your, your map. I mean, not suggesting the world is flat. Uh, it's, it's a term of speech sometimes. So none of these, uh, everything important in scripture for salvation and discipleship and worship is, is clearly stated. But there are some passages of the Bible less easy to understand, and the less easy to understand passages should be understood in the terms of the clearer. So if you're wanting to understand doctrine of the resurrection of the body, you go to 1 Corinthians 15, because no chapter of the Bible deals with the resurrection of the body clearer than 1 Corinthians 15. You don't go to some obscure uh, other passage. So uh, in, in the books in the Bible, it's Scripture that interprets Scripture. Let's face it. The problem isn't that we found some parts of the Bible difficult. It's that we found some parts of the Bible so clear, and we don't like the implications of what we've got to do, uh, so many people try and pretend that they don't understand what the Bible's saying, but what they really mean is, I don't like the implications because it means I've got to get out of my comfort zone. Other comments, questions? Alistair? Yes. Well, you know, originally, um, I remember the first time I read the Great Commission, I thought it said go into all the world and witness to people. And after a while, I started realizing, actually, I must do more than witness. There's, there's real content like repentance and forgiveness sins that's got to be emphasized and not just what God did in my life. And then you start saying, but actually, it doesn't just say that. It's telling you to make disciples. It's not just decisions, not just converts, disciples. It's a lot more demanding. And, you know, I must have been going uh, along with the Lord for years before I realized actually it's saying make disciples of nations. I somehow missed the implications. 
And I don't know how long it took later for me to realize, actually it says all nations. And there's a fact that you can read the same passage again and again, but you somehow, for whatever reason, you not understand the fullest implications. But similarly, as a brand new Christian, I understood that uh, we're living in the last days with the terminal generation, the Lord's coming before the end of 1978, and I read the entire Bible from the perspective of late great plant earth, new world coming, uh, rapture fever, and um, uh, all the rest of it. So, you know, Dave Hunt, Hal Lindsay, um, like a thief at night, singing with uh, Larry Norman, I wish we'd all been ready. And so I, I was so um, locked into this idea that we are the last generation, we're in the final few hours, I couldn't consider marriage and children, for example. So all those pastor Bible are just like dead to me because there's no time to get married. Certainly no time to go to Bible college and study. I mean, goodness me. It's just got to dash out there. And so my limits of knowledge and understanding and the teachers around me and influence the culture, of course, put blinkers on and restricted my understanding of parts of the passage. And so I can go back to the same passage of the Bible that I read before and find mountains more now that those blinkers have been lifted or that I've got more information. Similarly, I immediately assumed that the Bible was teaching evolution because that's what I got as a new Christian. And it took quite a lot of uh, insights and lectures from creation scientists like uh, Dr. Philip Stott to open my eyes to, no, the Bible's really teaching about uh, specific creation by God. There's no room for evolution here. Death entered the world through sin and sin through one man. And uh, so I, I must say that the more I've gone along in, in it, I've been astounded at how shallow was my understanding of the Word of God as a new Christian. And I'm so glad there's no audio records of early sermons I preached. 